And there's no more to be said You know more than I know You know more than I know You know more than I know Hello and welcome to episode 1313 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Jeff Sullivan of Fangraphs. Hello. Hello. So we have sort of a theme week here, or at least a, a theme two out of three episodes this week. At some point on an episode, I don't know, a couple of months ago, I mentioned that it might be a good year-end idea to circle back and take a look at some of the stories that we missed from the season and just come up with something, some player or fun fact or game, some storyline that we overlooked that maybe everyone overlooked this season which is not easy to do because we have done (laughs) a lot of episodes and a lot of podcasting this year. So it's tough to find things that we never touched on because we get desperate sometimes. We'll talk about anything. So we're going to try to attempt to do that today and also on our next episode. And I've gone to the Facebook group and crowdsourced some stories from people that we never talked about this year. And I've got at least one for each team. So that's what we're going to do. Never tried this before, but we'll see how it goes. You know what you could have done if you weren't stupid? It was you could have turned this into 30 episodes. <laughs> I thought you were going to say take the week off. <laughs> because <laughs> wait, wait, can I, can I, can I take my back and, and do it again? <laughs> take the week off. Freakonomics yeah, that... does just old archived episodes, I think. That's what a lot of podcasts do. Why are we doing this? A lot of baseball podcasts take the entire offseason off. <laughs> Here we are the week of Christmas doing our usual episodes. That's what the Patreon people expect. I don't want to disappoint them. So, yeah, we're going to do this. I don't know. It might be a little shorter than the typical episodes, and we don't really have any banter because nothing has happened because, again, it's the week of Christmas. So... Here we go. We're just going to start with American League, I guess. Everyone always starts with American League for some reason, so I I feel bad about doing that. But we've still got a couple NL teams we need to come up with stories for. So we're going to start with the American League, and I've just sorted the teams alphabetically. So that's how we are doing this. So starting with the Angels, a team that was probably in our what top five talked about teams, at least if you count their players this year, certainly our most talked about non-playoff team, I would say, between Trout and Otani and other stories. So the one thing that our listener Jay Keith recommended that we talk about, because we never did, was Mike Sosha calling a Ken Rosenthal report about him stepping down at the end of the season, poppycock. Poppycock is what he called it. And then, of course, he stepped down at the end of the season. (laughs) And Ken Rosenthal, who, you know, I don't really think of as someone to take a victory lap or put other people down. But when that news came out, Ken Rosenthal quote tweeted Bill Shaken's tweet about Sosha announcing he would not return to the Angels and just said poppycock in all caps. (laughs) Well played, Ken. So what do you think? Was... Sosha, when he said that, so this report came out from Ken Rosenthal in early August, and he said poppycock, and he said it's not true, he has no idea where it originated, nothing has changed since we talked in October, there's always chatter out there, that's it, the only word I have is poppycock. (laughs) The only word he had for this was poppycock, there are many other words, but what do you think, why did he 
deny this report at the time it feels so in the same way we we almost put on this list and then decided because we had talked about it how at the start of the offseason jerry depoto of the mariners said that they were not going to go through with a full rebuild and it has been followed by a nearly full (laughs) rebuild to this point not even christmas yet and they've they've torn down in in a sense maybe it's just because we've become inured to it it being 2018 and the environment being what the environment is that you can just kind of look at something like this and and think of it in political terms where you just have people who are deliberately lying to you or just covering up the truth because maybe people just aren't ready for the truth to come out. And Mike Sosha presumably would have known at the time that the report was accurate, that in August he did know that he was not going to return to the Angels. But who who would stand to benefit from keeping that under wraps? That's what I am... Here's 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 the important thing for people to understand. These are things we didn't talk about during the season, and we are no more informed about them now <laughs> than we were during the season. So, right. who would have been protected? What's the benefit? Do you do, would it be would it be to keep the players not just like tuning out so that they would right. stay focused under Mike Sosha? Yeah, I mean, just to keep him from lame duck status officially. I mean, I think there was a sense that. He was probably going to be done, but yeah, just not to have it be a dead manager walking sort of situation for the last couple of months. I mean, by that point, the Angels were kind of out of it anyway, but still, maybe it's just a little easier to do your job if players don't know that you won't be there next year and they still have to listen to you and they can't just say, well, I'm stuck with this guy for only so much longer. I mean, it's possible that he had not made an official decision or that the Angels had not made an official decision at that time, you'd think he'd know which way the winds were blowing at that point. But maybe he and Billy Epler and whoever else and Artie Moreno just said, oh, we'll figure it out at the end of the season or something and we'll see how we all feel. I don't know. It's possible that there was no actual decision made at that point. But yeah, like who does it benefit i guess to have it known that social would be done at the end of the season so i can see i mean i don't know why he would deny it and call it poppycock knowing that it was likely to happen so i mean maybe he was in denial at that point who knows it's (laughs) he had had that job forever maybe you just don't envision it coming to an end yeah i think that's fair that's all I got to say about Mike Sosha. It's going to be, I think it'll become 2019. It's going to be strange to look at the Angels dugout and and not see Mike Sosha anymore. Because mm-hmm. just kind of like Bruce Bochy, he's just someone that you assume is going to be there the entire the entire time. Yeah. Like, like you don't see Brian Cashman every day if you watch a Yankees game. But like Brian Cashman is going to have that job until, until he's dead or until something <laughs> more calamitous happens. Like there's no one is going to get rid of Brian Cashman. So he's just going to be there. And by, by having Brian Cashman there or by having Bruce Bochy, there you can kind of forget about the fact that we're all aging ourselves but Mike Sosha being gone is just a reminder that these things move in in one direction and given enough time everything that you know and are familiar with will be taken away from you (laughs) right yeah and you know I, I think this was actually less of a distraction for the Angels this season than it could have been like I thought that there might be a lot of talk about Sosha and maybe he would want to come back and the team wouldn't want him back and it would be like it got under Jerry DePoto when DePoto basically left because of Sosha and because of that power imbalance and Epler obviously got along a lot better with Sosha and maybe Sosha changed in some ways but I thought maybe things would get awkward in the last year and I also thought it was a difficult situation for him 
to have in his last year because he's dealing with Shohei Otani, a unique player, and having to figure out how to handle him. He's dealing with Albert Pujols and having to phase him out or not disrespect him, but also not let him beat you. And there was potential for Pujols to lose playing time, which maybe it turns out will be more of a 2019 story than a 2018 story. But there were a lot of challenges there, and I figured that Sosha being in the last year of his contract might actually come up more than it did. But other than this just sort of spat with Ken Rosenthal, it didn't really seem to be a huge issue for the Angels this year. But we got 15 teams in the American League. That was six <laughs> minutes on the Angels. What are you doing? <laughs> okay. Next team up, Astros. Actually, you know what? Yeah. I, oh, I do okay. wonder. Now, there's no yeah. way. We, we don't have like transcribing software. I don't think that's useful for this podcast. But it would be interesting. Mm-hmm. It feels... Maybe because of Otani, but it feels like we talked about Mike Trout a lot less this year than last year. Not because he was any worse. It just yeah. feels like he wasn't the subject. And maybe it's too cliche at this point, but maybe 2019 will be the year of Mike Trout coming back to Effectively Wild. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We talked about his defense getting better. We we talked about him, I guess, early in the season when he was on pace for his best season ever. And in some ways, he did have his best season ever. He was just uh, hurt for a while. But yeah, we didn't do as many strange Mike Trout hypotheticals probably this year as we usually do. We still did more than anyone else did. (laughs) All right. So Astros, again, difficult to find something that we didn't talk about with the Astros because especially with these playoff teams where we have to talk about them for an extra month, hard for anyone or anything to go unnoticed. But you and also listener Spencer proposed that we talk about Miles Straw who was just briefly a part of the Major League Astro season, but had one of the most interesting minor league seasons. Yeah, so Miles Straw was with the Astros for 10 plate appearances, all of 10 plate appearances, and then in the playoffs, he was with them for zero plate appearances, but he did score a run, stole a base. Anyway, Miles Straw was first brought to my attention by Darren Willman on Twitter, the guy who was behind Baseball Savant. And one of the things that... So here's what we're going to do. Ben, I don't know if you've looked at this, so I'm going to send you a link. And then I want you to look at this link. I will paste it, and I want you to look at the the spray chart. Okay. Miles Straw in the minor leagues. All right. Oh, by the way, he's right-handed. Wow. Yeah, no, I had not (laughs) seen this for... (laughs) We can link to this for anyone who wants to see, but basically there are almost no baseballs plotted on the left side of the field. (laughs) Yeah. So now this is, this is all air balls. This does not count grand balls. So whatever, but Mm -hmm. Miles Straw, uh, there are, there are a couple things about Miles Straw and I don't even know Miles Straw. So I don't know what he's like personally, but if you look at everyone in the minor leagues, one thing is that Miles Straw did lead the minor leagues in stolen bases. He stole 70 bases this season. Second place had 56. So he led Mm -hmm. by a whole lot as a 25% lead over second place, which is yeah. pretty incredible. But the other thing about Miles Straw, conveniently, he batted pretty often in double A, and then he batted pretty often in triple A. So I looked at uh, at all the Fangraphs leaderboards for all double A leagues and then all triple A leagues. And in all double A leagues, the leader, a minimum 250 plate appearances here. So looking at double A, the leader in the rate of batted balls hit to the opposite field, Miles Straw, 47%. Uh-huh. But if you bump it up to AAA, the leader in batted balls hit to the opposite field is Miles Straw at 47%. So Miles Straw, not just, of course, him hit 47% might not sound like that much. But remember, we're splitting the field in thirds here, not half. And again, 
leader. Leader at double A and leader at triple A. 47% and of course he had another quarter of the batted balls up the middle. So Miles Straw, very, very little activity to left field. It's interesting actually if you look at triple A, the guy in second place for highest opposite field batted ball rate is Yandy Diaz. Miles Straw though (laughs) and Yandy Diaz. I don't actually know what Miles Straw looks like, but I kind of have an image of what Miles Straw looks like and uh, it's it, he doesn't look like Yanni Diaz in my head. Let me just though. <laughs> let me just quickly confirm. I don't think anyone who looks like Yanni Diaz could steal seventy bases in a season. And as yeah. I look up a picture of Miles Straw, yeah, no, Yanni Diaz <laughs> could probably sleep Miles Straw within one of his biceps were it to be too cold outside. Miles Straw could just kind of like cut the bicep open and crawl inside for warmth so uh (laughs) 70 stolen bases everything the opposite field mile straw one of the weirder not necessarily most high ceiling but certainly one of the weirder players in all of professional (laughs) baseball trying to get the image of yandy diaz as a a tantan out of my head (laughs) yeah so a couple other things about maestro so he did get to 70 steals in the minors and it turns out he was challenged to steal 70 by his minor league manager his double a manager omar lopez challenged him to steal 70 to start the season and he did exactly that he took that instruction very literally he also added a few steals in the majors, so he stole a couple bases in September and stole one in the ALDS, so he actually stole 73, and that is quite an improvement over his previous seasons. He was not always such a runner. He's always been fast, but he stole 38 in 2017. He stole 43 bases over his previous two seasons combined, and he also really improved his caught-stealing mark, I think. It's he was very efficient as well so that is good and evidently people just kind of talk to him like Kyle Tucker told him I'm reading from an athletic article here by Jake Kaplan Kyle Tucker told him dude you're way faster than me and I have the same amount of bags as you and would kind of tease him about that and so he figured yeah I can do this I can steal lots of bases and so he just did And he has one of those stories like he was cut as a freshman player because he was undersized, as you were just saying, and he was, what, a 12th round draft pick? I mean, you know, not a top prospect or anything. So the interesting thing is obviously the Astros are set now with their Terrence Gore for the foreseeable future, but can he hit? Can he be a better overall player than Terrence Gore? Well... I was just going to point out that Miles Straw has a career professional on-base percentage of 395. Yeah. And uh, he has <laughs> so a, he's good. like 378. He's been a lot better than Terrence Gore at the hitting part of the game. I can't speak to the defense, uh, yeah. but Miles Straw has played a lot of, this won't surprise anyone, center field. So he's also mm-hmm. apparently made an appearance at shortstop last season. So Miles Straw is kind of buried. It's it's weird. You look at the Astros. I don't know how good Miles Straw is going to be, but he's there. But he's kind of behind Tony Kemp, who's really fascinating and weird. But he's also kind of yes. behind Kyle Tucker. But Kyle Tucker hasn't emerged yet. And Derek Fisher kind of got lost in there somewhere because he just had a bad season. But there's a lot of interesting outfield talent in Houston. And we're moving on to the next team because this is taking too long. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I th- I think uh, Straw is a, a good defender, supposed to be. He was also a, a Juco player, so unlikely origin story. I almost talked about Tony Kemp as like a good choice for this segment because we didn't really talk about Kemp much this year, and how odd and weird and wonderful is it that the other tiny player in baseball is on the same team as the first good tiny player. But anyway, next team, 
So the A's, Steven Piscotti is a player I don't know if we talked about at all this year, but he had a very notable season. So Steven Piscotti was known, I think, most for a sad off-the-field story, which is that his mother had ALS, and so he was traded back from the Cardinals to the A's. Obviously, the Cardinals were looking to trade him anyway, but they were able to work things out so that he could go to the A's, which is where he's from, and be near his mother. Now, his mother passed away in May, and obviously that was very difficult for him to deal with, as it would be for anyone. And then Stephen Piscotti came back after his mother passed away, and... He was one of the best hitters in baseball for the rest of the season. Not immediately. Like, he came back and hit a home run, I think, in his first game back, which was very emotional, obviously. And then, you know, he didn't immediately take off. But after late May, he was, like, I think one of the 10 or so best hitters in all of baseball. There are limits to what there, there's a tact to writing about baseball analytically in that maybe not everything needs to be discussed as an experiment. And so this is all going to come off as kind of cold. But like, I don't think anyone has ever had like the heart to go pursue like what do what do players performance look like before and after since on the bereavement list? Because it's just right. like one of those questions <laughs> you might want to know the answer to, but you could never you could never really in good conscience like do the work and then publish it and expect like a warm and hospitable response. <laughs> but right. with Stephen Piscotti, at least you can understand what he came back from the bereavement list on May 15th. He hit that home run you were talking about. It was a very, very emotional, excellent moment. And he kind of struggled on the field for the next two months for reasons that anyone could completely understand. But then for him to just mm-hmm. light it up for the remaining four months is it is a it's a storybook season in a storybook season that the A's had and it it did kind of get lost but in the way that you know we'll we'll talk to Sam I think this this week about the mm-hmm. the that which lingers from 2018 in in the public memory and like you you wouldn't you wouldn't have a movie about the Oakland A's we've already done that no new movie could be that popular but you could absolutely release a movie about Stephen Piscotti and his 2018 in in particular. You start with maybe a little backstory, and then you, you have him get traded to Oakland, and then you, you have everything else happen, and then you just have him help power the team to the playoffs miraculously. Mm-hmm. Stephen Piscotti's 2018 is a story that handled appropriately and produced productively you could have people remembering this season 30 40 50 years down the road just there is the you don't even need to write that compelling of a script because the the true story is already it's already just right right there and it was it was Mm -hmm. going to be a sensitive subject for us to bring up on the podcast and we're just we're just two silly boys on this podcast (laughs) we're not accustomed to handling the the serious subjects all that often because so little of this is serious but Stephen Biscotti really put together the season that you, uh, if you read about it and you didn't know that it happened, you would think this is over the top. Yeah, May 28th on, he hit 286, 352, 554. That is a 147 WRC plus and 24 home runs. 
he doesn't really walk, but he has lots of power, doesn't strike out too much, and he was, you know, obviously a good player early in his career with the Cardinals and a a prospect and everything, and they signed him to an extension, and then he had a down year, which you can certainly understand given those circumstances, and so, yeah, I don't, we just didn't end up talking about him. There was so much else to talk about with the A's this year, but he kind of got overshadowed and, and shouldn't have, and Anyone who's ever lost someone in that way probably can understand just how you're feeling during that and how, in a way, you might be liberated, in a sense, after the fact, even though you're sad. It can be so difficult to watch someone suffer like that, and you yourself are suffering, and in a way, it's it's almost like a, a mercy when it's over, and you can start to move on, and he did, and obviously, I'm sure, was grief-stricken throughout this, but put together an incredible second half of the season. So, all right. The next story actually is somewhat related. It's kind of similar, actually. The Blue Jays, we wanted to talk about Rowdy Tellez's doubles explosion or his explosion onto the scene, really. So Rowdy Tellez, for anyone who doesn't know, he's a first baseman, a big, beefy first baseman listed at 6'4", 220, is at least that. He came up in September after rosters expanded, and in his 23 games with the Blue Jays, he hit a late-season Stephen Piscotty-esque 314-329-614. That is four home runs in 70 at-bats, but also nine doubles, and he, I believe, tied a record, right? He Or he became the first player with seven doubles in his first seven major league games since 1913. I guess that's the play index cutoff. So he was just doubling daily, hitting tons of doubles, and it was sort of like, who is this guy? Where did he come from? Why is he doubling every day? He is uh, only 23 also, and he had a, a similar story of tragic loss in that his mother passed away from brain cancer, which is terrible, obviously, and that happened in August. So this was right before he was called up and he was feeling the emotions that one can imagine one would feel in that situation, going from one of the saddest things that ever happens to you to one of the happiest things that ever happens to you and not having your mother there to see it is sad, but he put together kind of an incredible month even aside from the narrative aspect and i i had i was only tangentially aware peripherally aware of this as it was happening but as i look at rowdy tellez's history i i was familiar with him as a player because his name is his name is rowdy and so you kind of yes. you it catches your eye you look at it twice but in in 2017 tellez spent the entire season in in triple a with with buffalo and he batted 222 and he had a 628 OPS. He was he was really quite bad. And he was 300 OPS points worse than he was the season before in AA. And and it kind of, you would think that, that kind of knocks his career off track. But you can at least assume that there would be legitimate off the field personal reasons that could contribute to his his down performance yes. because his, it's not as if his mother just became ill all of a sudden. And I guess it is a, it's a coincidence to have him and Piscotty in this list back to back. But just mm-hmm. again, you could, well, I don't know. Now, what movie would be more successful, the Stephen Piscotty movie or the Rowdy Tellez story? Because <laughs> do you throw in a major league debut as well and a record right after the heartbreak? This is, 
I mean, yeah. <laughs> uh, there could like this could be a like a an Armageddon versus Deep Impact kind of like arms race toward the Hollywood <laughs> tearjerker. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't. I don't know yeah. how many producers or or scriptwriters we have listening to this. But uh, <laughs> if there's two, uh, then you should uh, you should get to work. I guess. Yeah. Or one who works very fast. Yeah. So Tellez is 23. I don't know how fluky this month was. I mean, he was a 30th round pick. He was only a 29th prospect in their system, according to MLB.com, before he was called up. Although he was barely a, a top 100 guy for Baseball America before 2017. So it's really hard to separate the off the field and on the field. So you can't really just look at the stats and know what kind of player he is. I don't know whether he will ever have another month like he had this September, but if that was the best month he ever has, that is probably the best time that he could have it just for healing and distraction purposes. So that was a nice story for a a team that didn't have a a whole lot of happy stories in September. And now we're moving on to the Cleveland Indians where yes. uh, the, the the thing that we didn't discuss was Jose Ramirez apparently being one of the world's greatest players at Mario Kart. Now, I have played yes. Mario Kart like like any red-blooded American boy. I have played Mario mm-hmm. Kart before, but one thing that I definitely don't do is continue to play Mario Kart in the year 2018. <laughs> you are more plugged into the, the gaming scene, just the, the mm-hmm. video game industry and those who participate. What is it in the first place that allows Mario Kart to have such staying power? It's been yeah. like a very long time, right? Right. Well, yeah, this is uh, Mario Kart. I I always say Mario because I'm from New York and here we say Mario and everyone thinks that's weird. And so now I've started saying it Mario, but it doesn't feel true to my roots. So I'm just going to say it the way I've always said it. Did you know that in – I'm sorry to, to cross talk, no, but did you know that apparently – so we <laughs> – my fiance and I know someone who's who's from Ohio and – he and the people around him. So, okay, you know the peanut butter cups candy, right? You're yeah. familiar with what those Reese's. are, and mm-hmm. yeah. So then you you are familiar with the small like M M&M and M sized yes the snacks. So the what minis, do you call those? Yeah. I I don't know what I would call them. Aren't they like Reese's like what's, pieces what's the name minis or something? Yeah, Reese's yeah. pieces. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> apparently, apparently there is a very uh, specific regional dialect where they don't say Reese's pieces; they say Reese's pieces. What? And I thought I thought our friend was just being ridiculous, but it's he didn't he couldn't hear it, and like it's like a weird regional I think Ohio thing where they say Reese's pieces. I I can't believe it. Like I'm a full grown man. It takes a lot to like surprise like capture my wonder. Now I'm so just so beaten down by the world, but you just hear just hear our friend Josh say Reese's pieces, and then look around as if he didn't do anything weird. Anyway, you were saying Mario, so that's fine. Does he? Does he say pieces? Pieces? He say pieces? Does he say I, no? Pieces it's just it's Reese's, Reese's pieces. It's just oh, that boy. specific candy. All right, that's a weird one. Yeah. So, Jose Ramirez at Mario Kart. So, this is specifically Nintendo 64 Kart, which I think if you grew up with that, you have a lot of nostalgia for it. And I still, wherever I go, I I have my N64 with me. I mean, I've shed many other gaming consoles that I once enjoyed, but my N64 will never leave my side. Partly for Mario Kart, I still have it, but mostly for Super Smash Brothers. I'm kind of about Super Smash for 64 the way that Jose Ramirez is about Mario Kart. And yeah, evidently he is just the the best player in the Cleveland clubhouse. He actually tweeted when the Indians traded for Brad Hand in July. (laughs) Jose Ramirez quote tweeted, 
Brad Hinn's tweet saying that he was excited to join Cleveland, just saying, do you play Mario Kart? <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> that is all he cares about. And the Athletics Indians beat writer, Zach Mizell, he did a great story where he took on Jose Ramirez in Mario Kart and he went into training. He played everyone. He spent hours doing it. And he mounted a pretty stiff challenge, but ultimately, Jose Ramirez beat him. And I think, you know, it just speaks to the fact that there are other things going on in the clubhouse. Baseball players are not baseballing 24-7, and they can be competitive about everything they do. That competitiveness that they bring to the baseball field kind of extends to all of their recreational pursuits as well. So... He is just unbeatable on Koopa Troopa Beach. He has a, he likes to play Mushroom Cup and uh, he always hits the shortcut on Koopa Troopa Beach and he is just unbeatable and he taunts everyone and does a lot of smack talk and, and that's great. It's, uh, it's nice to know something about players off the field, even if it's just that they're unbeatable at Mario Kart. Right. Uh, what other, I mean, so we know that athletes everywhere just play Fortnite all the time, and and maybe Fortnite yeah. has crowded out all the other games. But like, if you had to guess, what other what other games might still exist in in these corners of, I guess, not mm-hmm. even just a baseball clubhouse, just kind of the the people are still really really good at, even though they're anti. Yeah, I would say Call of Duty is pretty big among athletes, and. Also sports games, not surprisingly, whether it's the show or Madden or FIFA, definitely big with athletes. But when Sam and I were with the Stompers, they had a 64 in the clubhouse. They also later had a PlayStation and would play the show and Call of Duty. But they had a 64 and would play Smash Brothers and Sean Conroy our player that we signed, our closer, he was the Smash expert on that team, and I was too, and we would just play Smash all the time, and it was like a useful thing for me to kind of blend in in the clubhouse and like have a reason to be there other than just loitering or trying to talk to people for like book-related stuff or make them look at scouting reports or something. I could just kind of hang out and play Smash Brothers, so it was a, a nice way for me to kind of become a, a clubhouse staple. So Okay, I should have guessed. Next door. Yeah. All right, so the Mariners. We had trouble coming up with a, a Mariners story. By the way, I, I meant to credit people who have suggested these things. Andrew suggested Stephen Piscotti. John suggested Rowdy Tellez. And Scott suggested Jose Ramirez. You suggested our Mariners story, which uh, we had trouble coming up with because, again, we talked about the Mariners an awful lot this year. Yeah, right. I think that was part of the trouble is that the somebody Jerry Depoto has basically become a character for the mm-hmm. podcast, also in real life, but for the podcast mm-hmm. as well. So whenever he does anything, they gets our attention. And and of course, I have I still pay more attention to the Mariners than most other teams. Meg Rowley's a friend of the podcast. Anyway, we did eventually settle on Mike Marjama's voluntary retirement, which took yeah. place in July. Mike Marjama was the Mariners' opening day backup catcher. They traded it for him and Ryan Garten late in 2017 from the Tampa Bay Rays. It was a it was a small trade, not a, a headliner involving a bunch of minor league players. But Mike Marjama came over to the Mariners, and he was the backup to Mike Zanino. And he opened in the major leagues. He was a backup. He wound up getting sent down to AAA before too long. He was replaced by David Freitas on the roster. So Marjama's just down in, in Tacoma, and he's 
is playing fairly well. He's hitting. He's on a hot streak. And then in July, he informed the team that he was retiring from baseball to take a position with the National Eating Disorders Association. Mike yeah. Marjama had told the Sacramento Bee last year that he battled an eating disorder when he was a wrestler in high school in Northern California. He said he cut weight for wrestling, and he kept dropping pounds, plummeting to as low as 130. He required inpatient treatment. He recovered, and he's been outspoken about the disorder since. So we have seen in other sports, especially football, we've seen what one might consider, say, premature or just kind of surprising retirements. But I've never seen a retirement that's that's quite like this one where mm-hmm. Mike Marjama, I don't, I'm not going to say that it was something where he just woke up one day and, and felt it was right. Maybe he was gnawing at him just for days, weeks, months, and even years. But he decided, you know what? Baseball isn't my calling. He wasn't forced out by just low minor league wages. He was he was on a 40-man roster. He had, again, opened the year on a major league roster. He had, in a sense, made it. But it's mm-hmm. still the thing that he had pursued for his entire life just wasn't enough. And he, he thought, you know, I could probably make a bigger difference doing something else. And to his credit, he, he did it. He just up yeah. and quit baseball. And he mm-hmm. volunteered himself and all of his efforts toward trying to improve people's lives. It's, I mean, I don't, I don't know any number of words to string together to make a statement that is at least as powerful as the statement that he already made. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, good for him. I mean, he was uh, only 29. He wasn't going to be a superstar or anything, but he had gotten to the major league level, which is your childhood dream for most of these players. And he then just gave it up and walked away to do something that he thought was more important. I don't know exactly what went into his decision, but I think, you know, it's uh, pretty admirable that he made that decision and certainly unusual. So I'm glad that we belatedly discussed it. What's that? Another team? Let's move on. (laughs) Yeah. So Baltimore Orioles. Now, this one was tough because uh, (laughs) we didn't want to just bash the Orioles here at the end of the year. But what else can you say about the 2018 Orioles? But we have come up with a way to speak in a positive manner about the Orioles. Thank you to Chris for suggesting this. Richard Blyer. A name that I'm not sure has ever come up on this podcast, but really should have before this point, because Richard Blyer is kind of like the one bright spot for the Orioles this year and just one of the most successful pitchers over the past few years, period. Now, we can talk about how and why and whether that will continue, but the fact of the matter is that Richard Blyer, who is turning 32 in April, has now pitched 119 innings for first the Yankees and then the Orioles over the past three years, and he has a 1.97 ERA. In all three of those years, he has had a 1.9-something ERA three years in a row in 23 innings, 63 in a third innings, and this year, 32 and two-thirds innings. I think he got hurt. I forget exactly how he got hurt, but the Orioles were not allowed to have nice things this year. But... (laughs) Over the past three years, so 2016 to 2018, minimum 100 innings, the only two pitchers who have an ERA below two are Richard Blyer and Zach Britton. (laughs) And uh, Zach Britton gotten a lot of attention. Richard Blyer, not a lot of attention. It was uh, a lat issue, by the way, that sidelined him. He is expected to be back for opening day. And if you look at... This is a a very silly leaderboard to look up, obviously, but if you sort all-time 
career ERA, 1901 to 2018, minimum 100 innings pitched. You have only four pitchers who have pitched at least 100 innings and have an ERA under two. And uh, two of them are Hall of Famers, Ed Walsh and uh, Addy Joss from the Dead Ball era. Two Dead Ball era Hall of Famers, Craig Kimbrell, who has a 1.91 ERA and is looking for all the money in the world, and Richard Blyer. <laughs> Richard Blyer, <laughs> who just has a name that just sounds like, <laughs> I don't know, it's just, it just doesn't sound like that baseball a name. But here we are with Richard Blyer and his 1.97 ERA. Let me, okay, let me, <laughs> the, here is, I'll try to make this short and sweet because it's it's really, it's two things, right? It's two things about Richard Blyer. And I, I looked at a similar search to you, but I looked all time, all of baseball history, going back to 1871, minimum 100 career innings pitched. The leader, the all-time baseball leader in ERA Plus, baseball reference statistic, Richard Blyer. Richard Blyer, the all-time leader with an ERA Plus of 219. He's ahead of Craig Kimbrell. He's ahead of Mario Rivera, Jose Leclerc, Billy Wagner. All-time leader, Richard Blyer. And it gets better because he broke into the majors in 2016. And since 2016, there have been 448 pitchers who have thrown at least 100 innings. Mm -hmm. And Richard Blyer is tied out of all of them. He's tied for the very lowest strikeout rate. 11%. 11%. He's tied yeah. with Justin Nicolino. It is absolutely <laughs> absurd. <laughs> Richard Blyer has the best ever yeah. ERA plus, the best ever, and he yeah. doesn't strike anybody out. We talked yeah. about Brian Mitchell how many times on this podcast? <laughs> Brian Mitchell, since 2016, has a strikeout rate one-tenth of a percentage point better yeah. than Richard Blyer. Yeah, it is really <laughs> wrong that Richard Blyer has not become a podcast character before. I don't know what, I mean, now he does get lots of grounders, as you yeah. would expect for someone who doesn't allow runs and doesn't get strikeouts. He has a 63.3% career ground ball rate. That is fantastic. That is probably one of the best over that period as well. So he's doing something right. Now, the Yankees kind of just gave him away after 2016, even though he had had his 1.9-something ERA. They just traded him for a player to be named later or, or cash. They clearly didn't expect much out of Richard Blyer, and he has kept it up. And Fangraph's David Lorela did an interview with him this year, and he explained that the key for him was adding a cutter. So he added a, a cutter in 2016, and that is what he attributes his breakthrough to. And uh, he says, you know, he just kind of gets this natural sinking action. And he says, you know, that he doesn't want to get strikeouts or doesn't need to get strikeouts. And whenever you hear that, like someone pitching to contact or saying they don't need to get strikeouts, well, in the long run, you probably do. And it's probably going to come back to bite you. But for now, Richard Plyer is making this work. And he has, uh, you know, not the greatest peripherals in terms of like FIP and XFIP and all of those things, but not bad, like not sub two either, but he's not a, a total mirage and, and he's kept it up now. I mean, it's, you know, it's three seasons, so it seems more meaningful. Ultimately, it's 119 innings, which is like, you know, a half season for a starter or a little more. So if it happened for half a season, we wouldn't make that much of it and probably shouldn't make that much of it, but it is improbable and wonderful. If you if you look at the uh, the bottom of the strikeout list, the in the in the bottom four of the lowest strikeout rates, we have a Blyer and a Boyer, and then if you <laughs> yeah. if you go out to the bottom seven, you got a Blyer, a Boyer, and a Block. So uh, I guess it's Black <laughs> Blyer, uh -huh. Boyer, 
and <laughs> black. All yep. uh, they don't strike anybody yet. You put all those striker rates together, and you're still like ten points below Adam Diaz. Mm-hmm. And he discovered his cutter by accident. He wasn't trying to throw a cutter. He was just warming up and in Triple A, and suddenly he was throwing a cutter without even trying to. And Anyway, very strange, and uh, we've managed to say something positive about the Baltimore Orioles. Good for us. Richard Blyer has a career minor league ERA of (laughs) 3.96. Yeah. All right. Texas Rangers. Now, this is another player that I am very surprised that we really didn't talk about much because he is uh, right up our alley. Isaiah Kiner Falifa. I guess it's Falifa, Falefa, I don't know. But he is another 23-year-old, and uh, he's from Honolulu, fourth-round pick, and he was a rookie this year, and he came up, and he didn't really hit, but he certainly had a strange positional profile. So Isaiah, I'm not going to say the whole rest of it, he (laughs) played 46 games at third base, 35 games at catcher, 20 games at second base, two games at shortstop and two games at DH. Now he is uh, another guy that David Lorola wrote about once this year. And he pointed out that this is a unique defensive profile. Most notably, he has started 35 games behind the plate. According to my Fangraphs colleague, Stephen Loftus, Brandon Inge is the only other player in the modern era to have started 30 or more games in a season as both a catcher and at an infield position other than first base. Inge did that in 2004 and 2008. So this is a very unusual skill set. He, uh, If you notice, I don't have a quick way of looking this up, but Isaiah KF... <laughs> He not only not only did he uh, he started 35 games as a catcher, he started 30 games as a third baseman, but he also started 19 games at second base, and he started twice at shortstop for yep. the Rangers. I I know he's not the only player to ever do that in a, to play those positions in a season because we've seen the Shane Halter guys just play every position in a game. But to actually, I I would be curious to know who's ever started multiple times at every one of those positions because that seems just like it is extraordinary now whether he is good at all of the positions <laughs> remains uh, very much up in the air there are also questions about whether or not he can you know hit uh, yeah. <laughs> at all but still mm-hmm. we're looking at uh, the fourth round draft pick and and uh, he spent pretty much this entire season in the major leagues he only played five games in the minors this past year so he mm-hmm. clearly has made it and now this is a team that doesn't have jerks and profar anymore it's a team that's in a rebuild so there are ample opportunities for isaiah kf to go find <laughs> playing time on this team and, and there's something about uh you have another note in the sheet i might as well be, let you be the one to say it yeah well the thing about his catching is that he doesn't do it very well <laughs> which uh <laughs> is not that surprising because like he's still kind of converting to catcher he never played catcher professionally Prior to 2016, he just started doing that at AA. He'd only played infield positions and outfield positions prior to that, and he hasn't been a full-time catcher in the minors, and so suddenly he's being asked to catch like as much as he ever has in the majors. That is difficult to do. So we've talked about how there's been a compression in framing performance that the bad framers have gotten better and teams have just given more playing time to guys who are good at framing. So you don't get the guys who are truly terrible at it anymore for the most part. But 
Isaiah KF is uh, the worst framer in baseball this year. (laughs) Minimum 1,500 framing opportunities, according to Baseball Prospectus. He is, like, way worse than the next framer, who was A.J. Ellis, actually, and then Nick Hundley, who's always way down there. I don't know how to uh, – the numbers are hard to to summarize in a way that is podcast-friendly, but just uh, take my word for it. He is way, way, way below the next worst guy in framing on a rate basis, and not so surprising because he's trying to do that while he's also playing all these other positions and has not really played the position very much. So it's uh, kind of cr- incredible that he even attempted that. And you can think of it – I mean, we were talking the other day about what if Bryce Harper moved back behind the plate and I mm-hmm. guess we can – the idea of somebody just becoming a catcher, because usually we see players who are catchers who then have to move somewhere else because of their knees or they're just not, you know, good at it. But mm-hmm. I am reminded as well that uh, you might remember this, you might not. In, in 2014, the Mariners used the sixth overall pick in the draft on Alex Jackson. Alex Jackson mm, yeah. out, of, uh, out of California, and Alex Jackson was drafted as a corner outfielder. And he wound up not hitting, and he got traded to the Braves, and the Braves – put Alex Jackson behind the plate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's just a, a thing they did. I don't remember enough about the reasons for doing that. But in 2016, Alex Jackson started all of his defensive games in the outfield. And in 2017, he started all of his defensive games as a catcher for the Braves. Mm-hmm. And now I haven't actually looked at the numbers. He's continued to catch in 2018. And by the way, he's still only 22 years old. He's like a prospect again, or still. Mm-hmm. I don't even know what to say <laughs> What about his his trajectory. But, and let's just let's just see what we're looking at. Alex Jackson, this year in AAA, according to Baseball Prospectus, above average framer. All right. Interesting. Good for him. Yeah. yeah. Last note there, there was a, a day, at least one day, when Austin Bibbins Dirks threw to Isaiah Kiner of Falifa, <laughs> which was the first time in Major League history that there was an all hyphenated name battery. So hyphenated name pitcher throwing to hyphenated name catcher. All right. Tampa Bay Rays. This is one that I suggested because I wanted to talk about this. The Tampa Bay Rays analytics director. This is a a story that just came out after the season, actually earlier this month. Tampa Bay Rays analytics director Jonathan Ehrlichman is moving from that front office position, like head of the quantitative department, to become a uniformed coach in 2019 he is going to become a process and analytics coach and obviously we've seen front offices and field staffs get much more in sync and on the same page in recent years but this i think is unprecedented this is a new thing that we are seeing here in baseball or that we will see next year and you know someone suggested we talk about kevin cash being extended through 2024 which is a really long extension obviously the rays are very happy with their manager and he was on board with this move and ehrlichman is 28 years old he is a you know math major from princeton and now he is going from the front office to the field he's going to be in uniform it's not entirely clear what he's going to be doing i don't know if he even knows it's just kind of you know passing information one way and passing information back the other way and helping with that communication but this is something that i mean you couldn't have imagined not very long ago at all i I think Maybe he experimented with this in the previous spring training where he was in the dugout sometimes or someone with the race was, but to actually have this be a permanent position on the coaching staff just goes to show you how much things have changed in recent years. 
Yeah, I, I, uh, I haven't read a ton about this since it happened. It just, I think I, I saw it, that it was happening and I thought, oh, yeah, I guess it makes sense that the Rays would be the ones to do this. And there are so many, there are so many coaching or advisory jobs that are just sort of opening up. They're just, how many hitting coaches or advisors yeah. have we seen just end up in mm-hmm. baseball now from, from outside roles, whether they're coming from, I don't know, driveline or they're just these independent hitting coaches. And then they just have, the, mm-hmm. uh, like the Angels have hired, I think, three of them. And there are so many interesting coaching or front office roles that are just being created now that it's hard to keep them keep track of them to keep mm-hmm. straight who's who's doing what. But this is definitely, to my knowledge, at least a, a first. And now, if you there's there's an article here. It's from uh, from the the Tampa Bay Times and it's uh, written by Mark Topkin, who does almost all of the the raised writing and for the Tampa Bay Times because he's the big <laughs> guy and. It says, uh, the new role, which Kevin, uh, manager Kevin Cash fully supported, will seek to maximize Jonathan Ehrlichman's impact in terms of adding a different perspective to what the Rays are doing and also challenging why they are doing it, covering everything from the game day routine and specific pregame drills to in-game strategy and post-game analysis. In other mm-hmm. words, eh, we'll see what he does. <laughs> right. He's going to be there. And he's going to be, I, I don't, I don't want to say like a middleman because I think that that could minimize his significance. But the real role, like Kevin Cash, will still be in touch with the front office, and the front office will still be in touch with Kevin Cash. But now you basically have a front office, what's the word, liaison, I guess, mm-hmm. who's just there to be maybe accountable isn't the right word, but so that if there are questions, it's just a lot easier for Kevin Cash and the coaching staff to get them answered, I guess, so that mm-hmm. they can just kind of have these conversations and, and debates in the dugout or or in the clubhouse. Mm-hmm. You don't have to arrange some sort of, I don't know, team-wide meeting, which would be super annoying. Yeah. I mean, we've been hearing for years, like, oh, yeah, this is the next thing that will happen. There will be some stat head in the dugout giving numbers and advice on moves. And we don't know whether Ehrlichman will be in the dugout because there is a, a limit on the number of coaches you can have in the dugout at any one time. And it, that's still to be determined. But the farthest he will be is, you know, in the clubhouse or something up the tunnel. You can go talk to him. So I think this is really kind of a, a milestone move. And according to Jonathan Ehrlichman's LinkedIn, he did his senior thesis on gravitational redshifts in galaxy clusters. <laughs> so he was a, a math major, but evidently did some astronomy too. And that guy is now a major league coach. So that's pretty cool. And uh, I hope it goes well. And also notable from that story is that his nickname is J Money, and everyone calls him J Money. Because when he started working for the Rays, he was dressing to impress a little too much. And he wore, (laughs) I'll quote here, a certain Gordon Gecko-esque shirt, blue with a white collar, that became known as his money shirt. And from that, the nickname evolved. And so he's just J-Money forever now because he wore that one shirt. Oh, well. All right. Next story comes from the Red Sox. I think this will be pretty brief. But Tony Renda. We did not talk about Tony Renda this year because there just wasn't a whole lot to say about Tony Renda. He got into a single game for the Red Sox this year, and he did not get in a bat. He did not play the field. All he did was pinch run one time. August 5th, he gets into one game. He pinch runs for Sandy Leone, and this was, uh, what, against the Yankees, I think? And he... Moved to second, or I guess Leon singled, moved to second on a wild pitch with two outs, and the game tied 4-4 in the bottom of the 10th. Renda was ready. He was just up there for, like, one day because on August 4th, 
the Red Sox had sent Kinsler to the DL because he had a hamstring thing. And then on August 6th, they recalled Raphael Devers from his own rehab stint. And so there was that one day where they needed an emergency infielder and Tony Renda was the guy they called. And so he comes in, tie game, bottom of the 10th, and he scored. He scored the winning run for the Red Sox. And that was that. That was the entirety of his contribution this year. And for that, he gets a World Series ring. (laughs) So good job, Tony Renda. Worked for the Major League team for one day, scored one run, did not get in a bat or play in the field. And uh, he gets a World Series ring. That's great. This is a case study in burying the lead because as as the spreadsheet that you put together notes, Tenny Renda was only in the game because he pinch ran for Sandy Leone. So right. Sandy Leone reached base in a game this mm-hmm. season. Yep. So you, uh, you <laughs> yeah. buried it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Royals. Yeah. One other Renda, he was traded in the Aroldis Chapman trade, one of the Aroldis Chapman trades, and he got into that game in the ninth because Aroldis Chapman allowed three runs in that inning to set up that walk-off. So that's kind of cool. And he's still in the Red Sox system. Maybe he'll be back someday. We'll see. All right. Yes. Next team, Royals. The Royals' best pitcher, granted, not difficult to be the Royals' best pitcher this year, but the Royals' best pitcher was a Rule 5 pick. Brad Keller, who was actually technically, I guess, a Reds Rule 5 pick, and then they Mm -hmm. immediately traded him to the Royals, and Brad Keller was the best pitcher on the 2018 Royals. (laughs) I remember at times this season looking at the Royals thinking like, oh, who is is this Brad Keller? And so I don't, maybe maybe it's part of like the writer bias, I don't like to write articles where I'm like, this guy isn't actually good. Because <laughs> right. I think those are mean spirited. Just let guys have their success mm-hmm. and and whatever. And you know what? To Brad Keller's credit, he threw 140 in the third innings, and he had a FIP of three and a half. And but then you know it, he he didn't get a lot of strike. This is turning into a, more of a negative segment than I was hoping for. Because <laughs> he did double in terms of his his Fangraphs WAR. He was twice as valuable as the Royals' next best pitcher. And I wrote yeah. about Jacob Junis. I am interested right. in, in Jacob Junis. And Keller was better. And it's interesting also, Brad Keller, I, I don't have a list of all of last year's Rule 5 picks in front of me, but Brad Keller was presumably the biggest success out of all of them. And, and remember, he was taken fifth in the Rule 5 draft. Mm-hmm. Also by the Reds, a team in desperate need of uh, pitching help themselves. But it's not even like you have a case of Brad Keller being the first pick in the Rule 5 draft. And and then he was able to, to have a great successful season. No, he was fifth in a draft where mm-hmm. nobody's good. So he was basically <laughs> off the radar. And now how many players were drafted in this year's Rule 5? There was a lot. I think it was like 14 or or 15, something like that. But, you know, the Royals, they got Birch Smith and mm-hmm. they got Brad Keller out of the Rule 5 draft. And Brad Keller had an ERA of 3.08 and Birch Smith had an ERA of 6.92. So <laughs> you win some and you lose some. But, uh, yeah, this pitching staff was was quite bad. And one of, uh, something I noticed and there's no reason why you would have noticed this, but if you look at the current Fangraphs depth charts, which I guess in fairness are actually a few days behind, Brad Keller has spent time in the bullpen and the starting rotation with the Royals. This is unrelated now, but looking at the Royals' bullpen projections, mm-hmm. the second worst bullpen projection in baseball this coming season, according to Steamer, has a war of 0.4. That's the Marlins. And the Royals are 30th with a projected bullpen of negative 0.6 war. They're below replacement. <laughs> That's how bad this bullpen is. Anyway, Brad <laughs> Keller, good for the Royals. Yeah. Yeah, so he had a 54.4% ground ball rate, which is good, too. So, I don't know. He's probably not great, but, hey, he was 23, too. We're talking about a lot of 23-year-olds. All right, next one, 
can't believe we didn't talk about this one at the time. Maybe we didn't because we didn't know exactly what happened, and I guess we still don't. But the Detroit Tigers, not that much to say about the team on the field. I don't know. Maybe we could have dug and found something. But I think probably the most notable story about the 2018 Tigers, which says something about the team but also something about this story, Tigers broadcasters Mario Impemba and Rod Allen fought (laughs) they physically fought and that was the end of their partnership on the air which had lasted for 17 years they had been working for 17 years together they had been there for a long time now it's not entirely clear what happened here but i'm just reading as we go to try to figure out what some of the the details were here but evidently on this day it was september 4th so Allen was scheduled for a pregame interview with outfielder Jim Aducci. I am reading from the free press here. Because he had been medically advised to limit his time at the ballpark as much as possible, he deals with lower back pain. He asked the producer if he could reschedule the interview for the weekend when he was scheduled to work analyst duties at Comerica Park. The producer obliged. It's unclear whether that was communicated to Impemba, who was seated inside the booth doing his pregame prep when Allen arrived. What began with a seemingly innocuous request if Allen could have that chair, the comfortable one, ended in an argument. Impenda did indeed give up the chair. Who initiated the argument is not known, but Impemba's silence indicated a certain annoyance. He deals with a bad hip, and Allen sat in the chair the previous night. Anyway, this turns into a heated and profane conversation. Allen does not show up early for the Aducci interview. Then Allen walked over to the home radio booth to speak with a White Sox analyst, Darren Jackson, and evidently Mpemba and Allen just are not friends. Like they've been working, you know, 17 years together and may have shared two dinners at most, apparently. And uh, post game, what happened? Evidently, there was an argument like a, a decade earlier when their relationship was kind of fractured. And there was some kind of post-game conversation. It didn't go well. Things took a bad turn. And Alan was standing in the hallway waiting for Impemba to leave the booth. And then they got heated some more. Alan was frustrated with Impemba. He questioned his professionalism. Impemba put his finger in Alan's face. Alan put his arms above Impemba's shoulder below his chin, pushing him up against the wall before the two were separated by a freelance TV producer. And Alan's agent denied that it was a chokehold. Whether it was or not, we don't know. There was no police report filed here. But anyway, Alan couldn't take it anymore. Impemba was pushing his buttons. This is how it happened. But basically, these guys did not get along for most of their very long partnership. And finally, they just physically fought. And that was the end of that. And uh, that is not a story that you ever hear, really. This is really something just straight out of Brockmire. How does it get the 17 years if they've never gotten along? I mean, the most yeah. important thing you want out of a broadcast is chemistry between <laughs> right. the broadcasters, right? Right. And how, yeah. This is at least an open secret with Darren Jackson involved, he's, and he's knew mm-hmm. that he that they had never gotten along. But did they just never say anything <laughs> to anybody? Or did the people in charge of the broadcast just decide, you know what? Let's just keep them together. I'm sure they'll come to appreciate one another's <laughs> character over the next right. decade. Maybe the third decade will do the trick because, you know, <laughs> when people don't get along and see eye to eye for 17 years, they definitely yeah. figure it out in year 18. They just give in. They're like, you know what? 
all of the things that I hated about you before. I've just come to love. I can't. I can't broadcast without you squeaking around in the chair next to me, or I can't do a good game if you don't ask me to constantly alternate the comfortable chair and the less. Why? Why not just get another comfortable chair? Why, <laughs> I mean, you're si- you're sitting in it like 81 games of a season. Right. You have a bad back. You're in it for four hours at minimum. <laughs> <laughs> that is an excellent question. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, evidently they were mostly cordial on the air. Like, I don't think they were faking being best friends or anything, but it wasn't, like, coming out all the time. But it is because, like, how many times did each of them, like, renew his contract over the 17 years? And, I mean, I get that there aren't that many big league jobs, and maybe if you have one, you can't just go get another one. But you would think you'd want to work with someone whom you don't find distasteful for hours a day for 17 years. So uh, it's, uh, I, I guess it goes to show you that you can get along and fake you can put up a facade of liking each other and no one will be the wiser. I don't know. For, for all anyone knows, we hate each other and never talk off the air, but we put on a, a fake podcast camaraderie. That is not actually the case, but it was the case for Mpemba and Alan. Anyway, maybe it's for the best that things finally came to a head here and they can each find someone to work with that uh, they do not despise. The article concludes, Alan couldn't take it anymore, didn't control his emotions, and Impemba pushed the last button that detonated their successful run in Detroit. Let's just take as a given, I guess, that it was a successful run in Detroit. There are differences between broadcasting teams and baseball teams, but mm-hmm. if a broadcast team can have a quote-unquote successful run for 17 years and they hate one another, <laughs> I think a baseball team can get along for six months if a few players don't really get along with one another because when you're on the field then you just put all that stuff aside because you have a job to do and then Mm -hmm. and then you can allegedly put somebody else in a chokehold when the job is over and then right anyway club we should move on this we've already talked for an hour come on what are we doing (laughs) the detroit news says that occasionally there would be pregnant pauses on the air because impemba would quit talking while alan (laughs) focused on an email or text or tweet (laughs) the play-by-play man then had his fill of carrying the broadcast minus help from a partner he considered distracted and disconnected (laughs) so that's not that's not great for i'm gonna try that i'm just gonna stop participating All right, moving on. Next topic, the Twins. We may have briefly touched on this at some point, but Byron Buxton, so much went wrong with Byron Buxton's season, but the service time manipulation was notable. So this was, I I think we may have mentioned because Derek Falvey actually acknowledged that they were essentially manipulating Byron Buxton's service time, which, I mean, just about every team does it, but very few teams say they are doing it. And Derek Falvey said, and I can quote him here, he said, I think part of our jobs is we're supposed to be responsible to factoring service time into every decision we make. We wouldn't be doing our jobs if we weren't at least aware of service time impacts on decisions we make, which is true, but not something that most people say. So he was, what, he had a DL, he had a left wrist injury Then he was activated from the disabled list in AAA in mid-August and was still not called up. And I think Thad Levine said that it was partly because of his health and his production and all of that. I mean, clearly he was terrible 
in the majors when he started and he's been such a mercurial and hard to figure out player for years now but also they were sticking him in the minors for as long as they possibly could <laughs> Entering some emails, doing some texts, doing a tweet. Hold on a second. <laughs> it, now, in I don't I don't want to say in like the Twins' defense because this is this is bad. The, the Twins' regular left fielder down the stretch because Eddie Rosario was was injured was that they had Robbie Grossman playing left field. Robbie Grossman is a mostly a designated hitter. I was going to say that the Twins maybe they felt like they kind of found something in Jake Cave who had a a really interesting season taking over in center field. And like Max Kepler, they wanted to play in right field. But if you have Robbie Grossman playing left field on a regular basis as a team that's out of the hunt, like you can play Byron Buxton. So it is an interesting case of, like, it's it's weird. It catches your attention that Derek Falvey acknowledged that they have to factor service time into it. But like, of course, they mm-hmm. have to factor service time into it. Teams are always thinking about service time, especially now in this day and age. Teams are all thinking the same way. It's it's not even the best kept secret or anything. Everybody knows exactly what's happening, but it does still feel like, oh, you said the quiet part loud as if right. it means anything. But I don't know, like in terms of discipline purposes, not that there's going to be any discipline, like these grievances never go anywhere and nothing's going to happen. Something that has to change about the way we handle service time, the way they handle service time, the way we handle service time is perfect. But <laughs> does it like does is there more exposure now to Derek Falvey because he said service time in his in his you quote? Think? I mean, right, it's Byron Buxton, so you can't say he's working on his defense, which is the standard line, because we've seen his defense, and it's great. But when he came back in mid-August in AAA, in 12 games, he hit 365, 400, 596, which suggests that his wrist was doing okay and uh, could have been called up after that, but was not. And he was 13 days short of the 172 needed to reach a full season of Major League Service time, his third season of Major League Service time. So I misspoke. I, I think I said it was Falvey who said that. It was Thad Levine, actually, who said that quote about service time. Falvey actually said the opposite. (laughs) He said, uh, that's not something we're factoring in. Honestly, the way we approached it is what do we think is the best thing by all the players and ultimately how we build our team. We're going to take that approach with this decision no different. That was like a week before Thad Levine then said (laughs) that they were factoring in service time. (laughs) So that was uh, probably a miscommunication about the messaging that they wanted to have there, where you have Falvey saying, not service time, and Levine saying service time. But obviously, we know what it was. Oh, my God, there's another team on this list. Let's move on to them. (laughs) Yeah, all right. Well, I'm sure we'll be talking about (laughs) what Buxton will do in 2019, because who knows? As a matter of fact, we're going to have our team previews coming up before you even know it. Oh, boy, your favorite. All right, White Sox. This was difficult, but we have found something thanks to Eric for suggesting this, by the way, thanks to Seth for suggesting Buxton and Isaac for the broadcaster fight and Caleb for Brad Keller and Chris for Tony Renda. So Eric suggested that we talk about Yolmer Sanchez and his innovations in the walk-off celebration space. So Yolmer Sanchez, I don't know how many walk-off wins the White Sox had this year because they didn't have that many wins, period. But Yolmer Sanchez, he found a new way to walk off. So I think this started with him dumping Gatorade on himself. So he gave himself a Gatorade shower. And uh, this, I think, first happened in May. So 
there was a Trace Thompson walk-off, and rather than dump the cooler on Thompson, Yomer Sanchez just dumped the cooler on himself. Then this happened again in September where he dumped the cooler on himself as he was running toward home plate. So it was like a he's sprinting toward home from the dugout and pouring Gatorade on himself as he goes. Now in August, he also had one where he poured Gatorade on White Sox third base coach Nick Capra for no particular reason. He just said he thought it would be funny <laughs> and... uh Capra said it it was funny, and evidently Yomer Sanchez is just a fun, good clubhouse guy to be around, and this is just a manifestation of that. But we've talked a lot about walk-off celebrations and how they've evolved and who you celebrate and who you congratulate. Usually it is not yourself if you were not involved in the play, but Yomer Sanchez decided that it could be. <laughs> quote quote Capra, that's how he is. He's so creative, <laughs> Capra said. He thinks up something different every day. He has grown a lot and he's a blast to have around. He's a great teammate. He's great for the coaches. He's very coachable on the field. The personality is unbelievable. I love him to death. That reads like a statement written by Yulmer Sanchez. But anyway, I, <laughs> yeah. I do like how so Yulmer Sanchez, he's a he's very quietly like a an acceptable regular baseball player. I guess this past season he wasn't great. Like his OPS was six seventy eight, but the team was bad. But he's he's not like a, a problem and he's not expensive. But like how low would Yomer Sanchez's numbers have to be before people are like, you got to stop dumping Gatorade <laughs> on like the people who didn't do the thing that you're supposed right. to dump? I, I love the exploration of the space because why why just dump Gatorade on the guy who did mm-hmm. the thing? Why why not just have fun with it like Yomer Sanchez sure. did? But you can, you can easily see how if there was anything that was just kind of bubbling beneath the surface or if he were like a problem on the team, like if yeah. – I don't know. If like Mario I, I, and Pemba had tried to dump Gatorade <laughs> on Tony <laughs> Allen. <laughs> what if like Baltimore's Chris Davis decided like I'm just going to start <laughs> dumping Gatorade on other people? They'd be like, yeah. why? If you're going to dump Gatorade on us, then we're going to dump criticism on you for being a terrible baseball player while you're making twenty five million dollars. Like, yeah, I when when does it become a, a problem? Pleasant sensation. I've never had Gatorade dumped on me, but it can't be great. I mean, it, it's nice that it often it happens to the sideline reporter who's trying to interview the person who just did the good thing, and then suddenly the poor reporter is getting drenched. And it's nice that that's not happening because Yomer Sanchez is pre drenching other people who are not even involved. So, yeah, I don't know. I guess you have to be a great guy to get away with this, probably, <laughs> and, and not piss people off. Last one. Last one, New York Yankees. So some people suggested that we talk about Aaron Hicks, who, you know, probably is an underrated player. They have so many stars, and Aaron Hicks is probably like the second best center fielder in the American League this year. Good job, Aaron Hicks. But Jonathan (laughs) suggested that we talk about one particular play, which uh, I don't think we ever touched on, which is Gary Sanchez, one of the times he was healthy and catching. He threw out Tony Kemp on a wild pitch, that was off the backstop. So I don't know what the rate of throwing out runners on wild pitches would be. Probably not great because a wild pitch is going to go to the backstop and it's hard to throw out someone if a pitch goes all the way to the backstop. But in this case, that happened and it bounced back perfectly. So like one of my, the most memorable plays of Joe Maurer's career, I think, which is sort of sad, but one of the most memorable plays is how he one time fielded a a ball that bounced off the backstop just without looking and kind of backhanded it. And in this case, 
Gary Sanchez, just the ball. I mean, I will link to the play if you haven't seen it and you are probably watching it right now, but it bounced just directly off the backstop in Yankee Stadium and just kind of magically came right back into Gary Sanchez's glove, and then he threw down to third and and got Tony Kemp. It was a pretty impressive play, and Gary Sanchez has kind of a a lost season, so I'm glad we could focus on the positive. What do you think Tony Kemp thought happened when he got tagged out? You can see in in the video he has this expression. I don't know if he was going before it was a wild pitch, or did he go because it was a wild pitch? I don't know. Probably the latter. We'll find but, out by clicking yeah. this button. So that's that's a good question because uh, it's Aroldis Chapman on the mound. Right. So no, he was not okay. going. So uh-huh. Tony Kemp not going. He's standing on second base. Now there were uh, there were two outs when this happened. He was standing on second, so we wouldn't have been mm-hmm. trying to steal third anyway against uh, against Chapman. But he sees the ball get past Sanchez. Oh, you know what? Okay, there's another angle here. And you can mm. see Tony Kemp, he's looking, he sees the ball get by Sanchez, but he's still looking in. So uh-huh. he commits to running, but he must have, he saw the ball, I, <laughs> he must have seen the ball bounce back to Sanchez, then he committed, he's like, oh, well, I'm, I'm going, I'm, I can't turn around. Yeah. But just the the feeling, so he's he's tagged out on the hand, he's sliding into the base, and then he, uh, he gets up, and there are a lot of different angles of this replay, so they just won't focus on Kemp's response for some reason, but... Yeah, I I guess I don't know. I don't know what the feeling is like when you're sliding into third because he just has this expression like, oh, I'm out. That's frustrating. But like, <laughs> by what act of God was Tony <laughs> Kemp thrown out on the bases? This is something I, I have genuinely never seen before. Not like mm-hmm. this. Not with someone that fast. No. Yeah. And it kind of like perfectly encapsulates Gary Sanchez because if there are two things that Gary Sanchez is known for, at least as a catcher, it is A, not catching (laughs) and missing balls, which is, you know, not totally fair because he's actually a good framer, but he does miss a lot of balls. And in this case, it was really a wild pitch. Like some wild pitches are kind of the catcher's fault. In this case, I don't think it was. He was set up very low, and Aroldis Chapman threw a pitch that was way high, way above the strike zone, and 100 miles per hour. So if you're set up low and Aroldis Chapman throws a fastball high, it's pretty tough to get your glove in the way of that. So I can't blame him here, but he's known for not catching balls, and then he's known for having probably the best arm in baseball, or just about, and great pop times and great arm strength. And this was both of those things in one play, one miraculous play. And the Yankee Stadium backstop is not that far away, and it just happened to bounce off the top of like the, the ad sort of in a way that it just came back. And, of course, it was thrown so hard that it just popped right back, and it all worked out perfectly. But, yeah, if you're Tony Kemp, you have to feel like the universe is just against you here. That it will forever count against him. He stole nine out of 12 bases this season, and that wouldn't have even gone as a stolen base had he gotten to third, but it definitely counts yeah. as getting caught. So Tony <laughs> Kemp, statistically, no upside on that play. Mm-hmm. Now yep. what have we learned? All right, so we've done it. This was a fun exercise, and that's good because we get to do it one more time on our next episode. <laughs> but thanks to everyone for the submissions, and hopefully you all learned something. I think we did, and uh, these were some stories in some cases that I hadn't even known about and in some cases that we really should have devoted some time to sooner. So hope you all enjoyed it. Thank you.
All right, that will do it for today. Wanted to share a quick story from our Facebook group. We have a listener in there named Wyatt Smith. He is one of many submariners in the Facebook group for some reason. Not sure whether it's supposed to be submariner or submariner. I think sailors say it both ways. But Wyatt was responding to a post about something that Jeff and I talked about in our most recent episode. We answered an email about a hypothetical. If you had to choose between streaming baseball games and having all other baseball information, which would be better? And Wyatt wrote, I had the worst of both worlds in 2003. Like many people, I spent the entire baseball season deployed. For me, it was submarines, and almost all of my baseball news came in one-sentence snippets and daily broadcasts. Occasionally, I'd get the equivalent of an email from family, but it was never the depth that I craved. But the story of the 2003 ALCS and how I experienced Game 7 is a memory I will have to my dying day. I was the officer on deck, and we came to periscope depth to clear the broadcast early in the morning, Mediterranean time. The game was still being played, and all we got was 5-2 Boston 8th inning. I was pretty dejected, figuring that it was going to be a tough comeback for the Yankees, and that I might not even get the final score until later that day. News broadcasts come in an hourly cycle, with sports being updated once an hour at the 15 after mark. We had at least 30 minutes before the next update. Luckily, we found some reasons to stay at Periscope depth, and at the next sports window, I get a buzz from the radio room. I pick up the phone, and our radio supervisor, another huge Yankees fan, as professionally as he could, gives me the final score. Making the shipwide 1MC announcement that the Yankees advanced was one of my favorite moments as a submariner, and I'm still happy to have missed the entire World Series. That is Definitely not how I experienced 2003 ALCS Game 7, which was from the upper deck in right field. But I love that story, so thank you for sharing, Wyatt. You can support the podcast on Patreon, stuff our stockings, by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already done so. Frank Hudson, Randall Woodford, Andrew Thompson, Kevin Reed, and Kevin Rust. Thanks to all of you. You can also join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectivelywild. You can rate and review and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and other podcast platforms. Please keep your questions and comments for me and Jeff coming via email at podcastfancrafts.com or via the Patreon messaging system. You may not get to emails this week because we've got the NL Overlook stories coming next time. And then, as Jeff mentioned, we'll be talking to Sam at the end of the week for the last episode of this year. But we will get to them eventually, so please keep them coming. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance. Merry Christmas to all of those of you who are celebrating the holiday. Enjoy the day off to those of you who are not. We hope you have a happy week, whatever you are doing, and we will be back to talk to you soon. Love